Hello friends, welcome to the second episode of the History of the Christian Church podcast. In this second episode, we're going to look into the early church leaders known as the Apostolic Fathers. These guys lived in the first and second century AD, and they're the individuals who played a pivotal role in shaping Christian orthodoxy, bridging the gap between the apostolic era and the subsequent generations that would follow. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and welcome to the History of the Christian Church podcast. If you've just discovered us for the first time, then why not subscribe? And that way you need never miss another single episode. And that way you'll always get a notification from your podcast provider when a new episode is released. Thanks for joining me today. The Apostolic Fathers are the earliest Christian writers outside of the New Testament and were the core Christian theologians, if you like, among the early church fathers who lived in the first and second century AD. They were those who were personally known to some of the early apostles or would have said to have been significantly influenced by them, not by just what the original apostles wrote, but by what they actually heard them say. Their own writings of these three gentlemen we're going to look at today were widely circulated in early Christianity, but it's important to note they're not included in the canon of New Testament scripture. I'll cover that later. Many of these writings derive from the same period or very soon after the New Testament writings, as well as coming from the same geographical locations as the New Testament letters and gospel accounts themselves came out from. They were never claimed to be part of the New Testament scripture. They were never described as what was called at the time Holy Writ. They were not actually apostolic themselves in source, but were the first generation of post-apostolic writings. This label, Apostolic Fathers, was in reality only applied to these writers many hundreds of years later to indicate the fact that they were the thoughts of those that represented the generation that lived concurrently to the original apostles or had had some sort of personal contact with them. In fact, the earliest use of this term was by William Wake only in 1693 when he was chaplain to King William and Queen Mary of England. The first use of the term apostolic father can in fact only be traced back to 1672 by a writer called Jean-Baptiste Bertillier, and he entitled his work The Work of the Holy Fathers Who Flourished in Apostolic Times. This was later abbreviated to the title of the Apostolic Fathers by someone called L.J. Grace in his 1699 English translation of the same book. So although this was first used of the term apostolic father was not used directly in that way up to that point. It is used repeatedly thereafter and is referred in a large number of Christian writings ever since published after that date. So who are these apostolic fathers? Well, there's three we're going to look at today. They are Clement, Ignatius and Polycarp. So we'll take a little bit of time and consider each of them one at a time. 
So first of all, Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome, as he's called by many, was born around AD 35, and he was consecrated as Bishop of Rome around AD 88, and he held that position until his death in AD 99. Now two men, Irenaeus and Tertullian, who we'll actually cover later, very soon, in our journey through the history of the Church, they list him as the third Bishop of Rome after Peter the Possible. Peter was said to be the first Bishop of Rome, then there was the guy Linus and Cratuasus, which means they were the third after that, in other words, the fourth sequential Bishop of Rome, and was given the title thereby Clement of Rome. He was said to have been consecrated by Peter the Apostle himself, and he is known to have been a leading member of the Church of Rome throughout the late first century. Now, in terms of his writing, the first letter, called the First Epistle of Clement, was written around 96 AD and was copied and widely read and is generally considered to be the oldest Christian letter, Christian epistle, that is in existence outside of the New Testament. Now, the letter is extremely lengthy. It's twice as long as any New Testament epistle or letter, and it also, in the text, it demonstrates the author's familiarity with many books of both the Old Testament and the New. Clement's letter repeatedly refers to the Old Testament scriptures, including numerous reference to many of the books that we would recognize as being part of that canon of scripture today. Now, within the letter, Clement calls on the Christians, mainly in the church in Corinth, to maintain harmony and order. Now, within the text, there's a great importance on the importance of this form of discipline and order in the church, reflected through tradition, the Christian teachings, alongside civic values, as well as, of course, as the wider biblical influences. Clement also stressed the need for an orderly succession in Christian ministry. God, he said, sent Christ, who himself then sent the apostles, and they in turn appointed bishops and deacons, and those then appointed their successors, and so on, and those who have duly succeeded them down to the days in which he lived and wrote. He believed those in those sorts of leadership positions should not be removed from those positions without good cause. So while Clement can be said to have taught the importance of almost a ministerial succession, it is important to note that he was unaware at this point of any later threefold pattern of ministry that would emerge very soon in the form of bishop, presbyter, and deacon. In fact, in one Clement, as in other parts of the New Testament, the word bishop and the word presbyter refer to the same person. There is a scholarly consensus overwhelming in favor of this letter's authenticity. Very few question it. However, the second epistle of Clement, which was traditionally ascribed by some early Christians to Clement, today is now considered to have been written, have been written somewhere between as A.D. 140 and A.D. 160, and therefore could not be a work of Clement himself, who died around A.D. 99. Now, doubts about this authorship of the letter is not a new thing. They were expressed in antiquity as far back as Eusebius and Jerome. Now, whereas one Clement, although widely described as an epistle, 
many suggest it appears actually to be a transcript of an oral sermon or a series of devotional homilies he gave, making it the oldest surviving Christian sermon outside of the New Testament. From a biblical perspective, it is worth taking a moment to analyse Clement of Rome's writing and his teachings in the light of biblical Christianity. You see, biblical Christianity places a strong emphasis on the authority of scriptures. Clement's writings, while esteemed by early Christians, was never and should never be considered divinely inspired in the same way as scriptures. It wasn't viewed that way at that time or even in the first few hundred years of Christian teaching and writing. And this was decided at various councils that met in the subsequent years. Now, most Christians would say that any teachings or doctrines throughout the history of the church must always be measured against the Bible itself, and that would stand, that principle would stand to this day. Now, Clement's writings reveal a very early understanding of the structure and the organization of the Christian church and are interesting in alone for revealing those factors to us. Now, while we can appreciate some aspects of his emphasis, on order and authority within the church, which obviously was required and the culture that it was emerging in, there might be some differences today in how the roles of bishops and elders are understood by many people today. Of course, reform traditions often emphasize a more Presbyterian or congregational approach and structure with an authority lying within the body of the local church community, rather within the authority of the hierarchical church structure itself. Evangelical theology places a strong emphasis on salvation by grace through faith as articulated by the reformers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin and how they read and understood the teachings of the New Testament Bible, particularly the writings of Paul. Any teachings on salvation, justification or sanctification in Clement's writings should be assessed in the light of these principles. Thereby, when we're examining his thoughts on matters like the role of the sacraments, Protestant, Pentecostal and Reformed traditions would typically emphasize the sacrament, usually just holding on to two of those conditions as baptism and the Lord's Supper, and believing that they held only symbolically as acts that convey the spiritual truths therein thereby avoiding an understanding of the sacraments as the means of grace in and of itself in a sort of sacramental stroke salvation sense. Many Christians today place a strong emphasis on the doctrines of predestination and election as articulated by John Calvin, etc. Clement's writings may not seem to always align with those doctrines which are central, of course, to Reformed theology. However, it is not absolutely sure that Clement intended them to be read in the way they're read by other sections of the church today. In summary, Clement of Rome is still to this day regarded as a key figure in early Christianity, and he holds significant importance in church history. He's believed to be chronologically the third person to hold the title of Bishop of Rome, and the letter to Corinthians, often known as 1 Clement, is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, non-canonical Christian writing. Christian thought and the challenges faced by this new emerging Christian community were shepherded by him in the earliest recorded days of the church. 
His influence has resonated for centuries, contributing to the early development of Christian theology, churches, and the communities and their involving role, which led to the primacy of Rome in early church history, thereby, of course, shaping the course of the entire history of the Christian church. Okay, the second of our church fathers we're going to look at today is Ignatius, or Ignatius of Antioch, as he is sometimes called. This guy was also born around AD 35, but died around 110, around 11 years after Clement, and he was Bishop of Antioch. He's believed to have known the Apostle John directly. His thought is certainly influenced by the traditions associated with that Apostle and his writings. He actually died en route to Rome in what was described as a martyr's death. He was being taken to Rome anyway to be killed, possibly as an example in the Colosseum. Now Ignatius wrote a series of letters which have been preserved as examples of the theology of the very earliest Christians. Important topics addressed in these letters include ecclesiology, the sacraments and their role, the role of bishops and the nature of the Christian Sabbath. He is the first who clearly identifies the local church hierarchy as composing of bishops, presbyters and deacons. He is recorded as speaking in many early churches and claims to have spoken on such occasions through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is the second person in the history of the church after Clemens to mention and refer to the Pauline epistles. At the beginning of the second century, Ignatius was, as I said, being taken to Rome to be martyred, and on this way he wrote seven letters. Five were to churches across Asia Minor, and one was to the Roman Church, and one was to Polycarp, the then Bishop of Smyrna. Ignatius is important because he is the first writer to clearly present this threefold pattern of ministry, this one of a bishop being in charge of a local church community within which presbyters and deacons were seen to serve. And he argues vigorously in defense of this pattern, an indication that it was not fully established when he was writing at that time. An indication of that is found in the fact that in the letter he is conspicuously silent about a system of single leadership that was known to be in place at that time. This shows that the threefold pattern that he was suggesting had not fully reached the Western Church at that time, because of he, of course, represented and was bishop of a North African-based church. Ignatius's main concern is with maintaining the unity of the church and the bishop's role are to be seen as the force of unity, the binding unity and the stalwart against schism and heresy protected locally. His own impending martyrdom preyed heavily on his mind. During some of his letter, he even declared that he welcomed it as a seal of his salvation. Writing this, I want all men to know that I die for God of my own free will. Let me be given to the wild beasts, for through them I attain God. Thereby the wild beasts may become my sepulchre, and leaving no part of my body behind so that I may not be, when I am falling asleep, be burdensome to anyone. Then shall I truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ when the world shall not so much see as my body. 
That's from Ignatius' letter to the Romans, chapter 4. Now, biblical Christianity, historically and today, places a high value on the authority of Scripture as the sole rule of faith and practice. But Ignatius' writings, again like Clement, contain valuable historical and theological insights, but should not be considered divinely inspired in the same way as canonical scriptures. They again were not included in the main canon of scriptures for that very reason. Ignatius's letters reveal an early understanding and application of how hierarchical structure is important to the early church, and he emphasizes the role of the bishops, presbyters, sometimes called elders, and deacons. Church traditions still may appreciate certain aspects of this church order, but today many differ in their ecclesiological structure, often favouring a more Presbyterian or congregational approach. Now it is worth noting that his use of the term bishop at that time applied to a single individual with responsibility for only a single church community, not the wider responsibility it often presents in many wings of the modern church. Ignatius emphasizes the importance of that alongside the importance of the Eucharist, Holy Communion in his writing, actually referring it to the medicine of immortality. Now today, most Christians of all traditions still acknowledge, well, these two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as the most significant acts, but many would hold that they only convey spiritual truths. Post-Reformation traditions tend to view the sacraments as symbolic rather than conveying grace in and of itself in any sacramental sense, which they hold was the original position of all these early church fathers anyway. Post-Reformation theology emphasizes salvation by grace through faith, echoing the principles of the Protestant Reformations. Now, Ignatius's teachings on salvation and justification can be assessed, but they need to be assessed in the light of these different biblical views of salvation. Now, whilst Ignatius is often cited for his early witness to certain Christian practices and beliefs, Christians would generally prioritize the authority of Scripture over any subsequent tradition. That's why the line was drawn in the sand, so to speak, between canonical and non-canonical writings. Any teachings or practices advocated by Ignatius should be and need to be examined both historically and critically and evaluated in terms of their consistency with the biblical principles themselves first revealed. Of course, Ignatius stresses the importance of unity with the church and the submission to the authority of a local church leader but many today would wish to emphasize that true authority is found only in the essential doctrines revealed by the words of Jesus himself and the writing about him, him directly from those who knew him and served with him and wrote about him in the Bible. This means today that many interpret this as meaning that we can approach church government and authority by valuing shared leadership, shared responsibility, alongside a wider sense of shared accountability. So in summary, a Reformed Christian perspective on Ignatius of Antioch's teachings would involve recognizing the historical and the theological insights he brings, while at the same time critically evaluating them in the light of the principle of the authority of Scripture. Why there may be many points of agreements, differences in emphasis or interpretation, then can be and can allow 
to exist. Let's be fair, Ignatius of Antioch holds immense importance in church history as a bishop and a martyr. His seven letters provide a valuable window into the very earliest Christian communities and address the emerging theological local church structure and the ethical concerns they faced at that time. His writings also shed light on the developing understanding of the Eucharist as the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion as a central element of Christian worship and also the roles and responsibilities of those called to leadership. So Ignatius plays a crucial role in articulating and defending Orthodox Christian beliefs and remember he's surrounded against emerging heresies. And as a martyr, as someone who it seems was willing to face persecution and even death, his steadfast commitment to the faith leaves and underlines his enduring legacy, inspiring subsequent generations and contributing to the shaping of early church theology, church governments, structure and application. So still today, Ignatius of Antioch remains a significant figure bridging the apostolic era with the post-apostolic period, and his writing continue to be studied for their insights into the formative years of Christianity. We now reach our third church father, Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp, born around about 69 AD, and died at around about 155 AD, was Bishop of Smyrna. That's an area which is now called Izmir in Turkey. His student, Irenaeus, who we'll consider later in our series, tells us he was not only instructed by the apostles themselves, but conversed with many who had seen the Lord and witnessed his teachings and his miracles. According to a writing called the Martyrdom of Polycarp, he also died a martyr, bound, burned at the stake, eventually stabbed to death when the fire failed to consume his body. Polycarp is held in wide regard across the Christian world. He is considered a church father in the Roman Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Oriental Orthodox tradition, as well as Anglican and Lutheran church traditions. Both Irenaeus and Tertullian say that Polycarp had been a disciple of John the Apostle himself, who of course he, John, was one of Jesus' disciples. Jerome wrote that Polycarp was in fact a student of the foresaid John the Apostle, and that it was the Apostle John himself who was the one who ordained him in the role of Bishop of Smyrna. Now Polycarp is regarded as one, the third of these three chief apostolic fathers, along with Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, who we've already talked about. He was appointed bishop by the Apostle in this area in Asia and Turkey, and given responsibility not just for the town but the whole region of Smyrna. Now the sole surviving work attributed to him is his epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, and it's a montage of references to both Greek writing along with his account of his martyrdom and becomes part of a collection of writings of the previously mentioned apostolic fathers. Now his passage on the teaching on the Lord to the Gentiles through the Twelve Apostles, many consider it to be the oldest surviving manual of church structure and discipline. It was in fact only discovered in around 1870 and its origin is uncertain, but it is considered to have originated from Syria, 
late in the first century, and its content reflect the transition from mobile itinerant ministers of the gospel, like the apostles and the prophets, to that of the beginning of settled ministry of bishops, presbyters, and deacons in local congregations. It's important for that perspective. It contains the first instruction, in fact, in church history, on this thing, the practice of baptism, in which he tells Christians to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in running water if possible. Adding, actually, let me read from it, if you have no running water, use other water. If you cannot use cold water, use warm. If you have neither, then pour the water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, evangelical Christianity, as ever, places a central emphasis on the authority of Scripture. Polycarp's teaching, whilst influenced by the apostolic tradition, are again not considered divinely inspired in the same way as the canonical Scriptures. Polycarp's writing reflect the early understanding of the hierarchical structure of the Church as it's being applied in his day. My modern traditions may appreciate certain aspects of church order that may differ from this ecclesiological, from this structure, than that described here. And many church communities, again, as I said, favour a more Presbyterian or congregational approach today. Polycarp in his writing refers to multiple books of the New Testament of Scripture, which adds to his position as having a certain authority in how we might approach his writing. He includes references to Matthew, Acts, 1 John, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Jude, 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, even the book of Romans and others. This demonstrates not only his high knowledge, but his high regard for the authority of what then was emerging as the New Testament canon of Scripture. And his emphasis on baptism and the Eucharist aligns with most modern Christian tradition on these views on sacrifices although some would say there are just these two that he refers to rather than the extended seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Most modern evangelical, Pentecostal, Protestant-based traditions would view these two core sacrifices as those which are highly significant acts, but acts that simply convey spiritual truths rather than bestow them. Many Christian traditions today tend to interpret these acts symbolically rather than the thing that imparts grace itself in a sacramental sense. Polycarp's view of salvation itself is not entirely clear, some would say. He does cite Ephesians 2.8 to say that salvation is by grace rather than by works, though later he is seen to encourage his readers to do good works. So it's not entirely clear from the text how he views his works in relation to salvation's as he makes very limited comments to make a clear conclusion. But many simply say he feels and is expressing entirely the same sentiments as James taught in his pastoral letters, where he says that works are the results of saving grace and are not necessary to obtain salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation itself. Now, Polycarp's willingness to face martyrdom rather than renounce his faith is admired across Christian traditions today. All Christians can appreciate his commitment to the faith, even to the point that when he faced the martyrdom of his life for that faith. Okay, let me just summarize today's episode. We've been talking about the Apostolic Fathers. These 
three people who played a crucial role in shaping and establishing what would become Christian orthodoxy during the formative years of the early, very early Christian church. These early Christ leaders who lived in the first and into the second century were direct disciples or associates of the apostles and they hold, of course, the unique position in that they preserved and transmitted, we can assume, the most authentic teachings of Jesus Christ that emerged out from that time. And these three men serve as a bridge between the apostolic era and the subsequent generations to this day. Their writings provide valuable insights into the very earliest days of the Christian faith. In response to the emerging theological challenges and the doctrinal uncertainties, the Apostolic Fathers contributed to the clarification of Christian beliefs for generations to come. They addressed issues relating to the nature of God, the divinity of Christ, and the role of the Holy Spirit, laying the groundwork for what the development of what we would today still consider Orthodox Christian theology. Their writings reflect an early understanding of leadership and the governance of the Church, and also simply the organizational framework of the emerging church and what means by which you could maintain unity and order within the Christian communities that were appearing all over the place at that time. So as this early emerging Christian church faced various theological challenges, these men actively countered these false teachings. Their writings, such as the writings and letters of Polycarp against these emerging heresies, provide a stalwart, a defense of Orthodox Christian doctrine contributing to the identification and rejection of heretical ideas. They also made contributions to the very earliest worship practices. Their writings and their teachings shaped the way Christians gathered for worship and celebrated together their relationship with God through Christ. So in summary, these guys, the Apostolic Fathers, are instrumental in safeguarding the apostolic tradition and providing doctoral clarity, establishing ecclesiastical structures, they resisted heritage, and they even contributed to early Christian liturgy. Their collective efforts significantly shaped the foundation of the Christian faith. They laid the groundwork that would guide the church for the centuries to come. So in summary, these guys, their collective efforts, significantly shaped the foundation of the early Christian faith. It laid the groundwork that would guide and lead the church for centuries to come. So thank you for joining me today on our journey through the Christian church, the chronicles, if you like, of the Christian church, the earliest Christian church. And stay tuned in the next episode as we continue our fascinating journey through what I've called a history of the Christian church. Thanks for being with me here today. Thanks for being here. I hope you find it helpful. If you'd like to see another episode, then why not click on the subscribe button? That way you should get a notification every time a new episode is posted. I do hope you will consider going across either to Buzzfeed or to Patreon and to supporting this ministry to ensure the other episodes can keep coming. But with that all said, I'm really grateful that you've been here today and I do trust I'll see you back again soon 
on the History of the Christian Church podcast. Bye-bye for now. That's postscript, and I just apologise for the sound quality on this recording. It was only having completed the entire episode, I discovered in the edit that the settings had been set to use the microphone in the video camera rather than the studio mic. I do hope you'll stay with me and you'll experience better quality recordings in the future. Bye-bye for now.